So we're trying something new here at the Ortho Show. Before each episode, we want to give you a little rundown about what to expect. This is a great conversation with Bert Mandelbaum. He's a dear friend of mine and colleague. He's really one of the master sports medicine specialists uh, in the United States. He's been an iconic leader and pioneer in so many different things. He he really was one of the earliest adopters of the idea of ACL prevention. When I think of cartilage, I think of Burt Mandelbaum from the earliest days. Uh, he's been involved in cartilage transplants and, and research behind that as well. And literally when it comes to soccer, he is the guy, the OG of orthopedic medical coverage for soccer in the United States and has been doing that for over three to four decades. It's a great story. He's, a, he's an amazing orthopedic surgeon, and we're so thrilled to have him on the show. We hope you like it as much as I do. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open with two more opening in the next eight weeks with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Well, folks, that's right. It's time for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast hosted here by Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon. At the Ortho Show podcast, we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world, and there is no exception to that rule today. We are very excited to have Dr. Burt Mandelbaum as an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist from Santa Monica, California, where he's been a part of Santa Monica Orthopedic Group, one of my favorite orthopedic groups in the world. Uh, I actually like to label our guest, Bert, so I'm going to give you a couple little, little bit more of an introduction here, and then we'll roll right in. So I'm going to call you a few things. I'm going to call you the cartilage king of the West. You're the defender of ACLs, and you are the OG and pioneer of orthopedic medical care for soccer in the United States. Welcome to the show, Bert. Great to be here, Ziggy. Awesome to have you, my friend. So LA has been running through things a little bit right now, right? I hear every day we're hearing a lot about California. You guys doing elective surgery right now or are you shut down? Well, we are in the world of sports medicine at the moment. The big house where we're associated with Cedar sinai is cut back a little bit on elective surgeries nowadays based on some expanding numbers in the hospital and the census is rising, COVID patients. We're really in a difficult time as a country right now. Yeah, we're we're doing the same here in Massachusetts. It's not really very good right now. We only have three beds available in my hospital. We're they're still not allowing us to do elective surgery, but they're, they're reducing the inpatient admissions by fifty percent. But my guess is, as we roll into the next week with the Thanksgiving uh, surge that we're going to wind up getting, that things are probably going to be shut down. But it's uh. You know, I don't know about you. Line me up for that vaccine. You know, I want to get on with my life and get moving here. But uh, it has been tough times. We theoretically are up uh, next week. Apparently, we have vaccine at 
Cedar sinai And uh, I don't know the order and hierarchy of who's getting it, but I'll be one of the first, I hope. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that uh, there's some negative negative energy about vaccines. We're not going to go there. We're not really a scientific program per se, but uh, I just uh, I just want to be able to to move around and not have to worry about this thing. Hopefully, and be safe with our kids. I mean, it's everywhere now, so hopefully, we'll get through this. So, you know, it's been interesting. I think in this in the world of sports medicine in Southern California over the last couple of years, you guys have been through a number of, of transitions, and now there's this really unique merger that's happened. I'm not sure if everyone's familiar, but Cedar sinai Curlin-Job, and the Santa, Santa Monica Orthopedic Group have all come together now as a single orthopedic department. Tell us about that, because I really find that pretty fascinating. Well, it's fascinating, Ziggy. About uh, 2011, towards the end, uh, Neil Elitrosh from the Curlin-Job Orthopedic Group uh, got with me, and we went on a journey that ended up uh, with discussions with UCLA, with USC, came up with Cedars-Sinai in October of 2014. We became as one. We renamed it the Curlin Job Institute, Cedars-Sinai, our affiliate. And uh, it's been a great relationship over the last now six years. Uh, it has allowed us to be the largest sports medicine fellowship in the world. It allows us to have research dollars to do clinically what we do, take care of our teams. So it's really been great for our mission to really take the legacy of Curlin and Job and take it to the next level. So it's been really exciting for us. Yeah, well, you know, as a former Curlin Job fellow myself, you know, I've been sort of following along and and you know, and and the crew at Santa Monica Orthopedic Group with you know, Kevin Earhart and Ramin Modaber, Michael Gerhardt, Clint Sapi. I mean, you know, these are some of my favorite orthopedists on the planet, as well as you two, Bert. And uh, so it's super cool that everybody's sort of coming together. You know, I think it's interesting because you guys have, you know, it's always been super important for you and your legacy and being able to train and educate and and be able to pass on the knowledge that you have to your fellows. And and so, I, you know, I'm going to th- throw out some names of some of my favorite uh, smog fellows, and then you can tell us a little bit about what's happening in the current fellowship. But we got to throw out some love to Jason Scop on the Eastern Shore, who is uh, another tremendous leader in the cartilage world, and, and Steve Mora, who absolutely adores you. We had Steve on the other day, who's the the elite uh, orthopedist for the UFC guys and just doing an amazing job, and then who I think is perhaps maybe the the greatest rising star is Jorge Chala, who is just a phenomenal, you know, machine of orthopedics. So it's pretty cool, isn't it, that you've been able to help trade all these guys? Well, the, the Smog family and now the KJI family uh, is just such an amazing group of people, orthopedic surgeons, personalities, academic stars. And we're very proud of that. And I think it really takes the full-bodied approach, not just the technical, not just the academic, not just the surgical. As we say, concepts, technique, technology makes the family really sing. And and that's uh, what you're speaking to. And it's part of our mission of, of training legacy. These kind of people who are committed to excellence, who are committed to be great people and leaders, is really what we're after. So that is exciting. And and so with the merger now, how many fellows do you have amongst the, the three three groups coming together? Well, we have nine at the moment, uh, nine orthopedic 
sports medicine fellows. We have two primary care sports fellows, and we have one children elbow fellow at the moment. So, uh, and we also, we can't forget, we have a concussion fellow. So we've got a few floating around. It totals to 14 at the moment. Yeah, I mean, arguably, you know, it's funny when you when you look at sports medicine fellowships, right? They're they're the types of fellowships that you can do where you go and you have a single mentor and you hang out with them for a year and he kind of teaches you stuff. But the the true great sports medicine fellowships offer you the in, entire gambit of what you can learn. So research, time in the operating room, uh, so the team coverage, which is so important and understanding the process and, and prevention of injuries and all of those things. And you guys have really leapfrogged right to the top at this point for has to be one of the top sports fellowships uh, in the country, if not the world, for sure. So Ziggy, as you know, one of the great things about sports medicine, it offers us the opportunity to do five different things. We can take care of patients and operate on folks. We could take care of teams. We could administrate events. That's our third. We could do research and we could do education. So there are five major elements that we have to being a sports medicine doctor in today's world. And we do all of them. We teach all of them. Mentorship is a big part of that. Uh, and so we're very excited about our fellows, our fellowship. And uh, we, as you know, really want to do right for the legacy of Pearl and Joe going forward. We want to take what they have done as our forefathers in sports medicine, and really take it to new levels of research. Uh, very excited, Cedars-Sinai really embellishes that. We formed a regenerative orthobiologic center at Cedars. Uh, that Mark Veris, our addition from right there in Boston from the Massachusetts General came four years ago. It's now the chief of orthopedics. An amazing job at really facilitating the relationships facilitating our abilities to be good and commit to excellence, which is what we really like to do. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've been one of the, the absolute leaders and pioneers in sports medicine research. I mean, I mean we always joke around, especially on this show, because we have lots of, of, of different um, uh, subspecialists that come on board. Uh, and, you know, sports medicine's really always been experience-based, not so much evidence-based. You know, we, we're at the tip of the spear. We're changing things all the time. But but you've, you know, been involved in writing over 90 papers despite being in private practice. You've written five books. I mean, research to you has been part of your core from the beginning of, of your practice. It is. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't usually like to think of all of us as being mission-directed. And uh, my mission is really to be able to focus on evolving concepts, technique, and technology. That's the formula, I think, and always reinventing. Concepts are changing, techniques, nothing you and I did that we learned as fellows that we do today. And technology, look at technology. Just every year, Moore's Law, exponential changes that we're seeing, things change. We've got to think in terms of everything from new computational data, robotics, 3D printing, virtual reality, orthobiologics, big five in terms of evolving innovations. And it's, it's accelerating. And, and we've got to stay with it. Concepts, technique, technology, and, and that's what we've been focused on. Yeah, I mean, innovation can be hard, though, for a lot of guys that, you know, you've learned what you've learned. It's hard to make change. I mean, I used to joke around, you know, the only two operations that I still do that, that J.R. Richmond told me in residency was 
an arthroscopic acromioplasty and a partial medial meniscectomy. And I don't really try to do those operations, especially alone anymore, ever. And so everything that I'm doing is really different from, from what my, my, even my great training at Curlin Job. And so, you know, I think that it's, it's super important to have people like yourself who can lead uh, and really help to push the envelope and, and really change the way, you know, people think on, on technique and, and, and the operations that are available. We're going to talk about regenerative medicine because I know that's a big, big play for you. But I want to I want to stay in cartilage for a little bit because I think that cartilage has always been, you know, I, I think of cartilage and I think of Burt Mandelbaum. I just do. I mean, it's something that's just synonymous. So so what's your latest? You know, I'm a I'm a Macy guy. So the people that are out there listening that that aren't necessarily repeating surgery, matrix induced autologous uh, chondrocyte implantation. You take cartilage cells out of your knee. We can grow them in the lab. And then we put them back into your knee six weeks later and we can grow cartilage. And it's something that I've been doing for almost 15 years at this point. But I know that you've been involved in a, a lot of different cartilage. So what's the latest and greatest for Burt Mandelbaum? Well, as you know, I've been involved with ACI uh, since its inception. Uh, back in the days of Lars Peterson, Matt Spritberg, and Tom Minus, really getting us involved. Uh, we were involved in the registry, spent a lot of time focusing on the whole approaches of chondrocytes, chondrocytes, chondrocytes. And then we we took a little bit of development phase. And again, as we talk about reinventing, uh, with Jack Farr and Brian Cole got involved in the case project. Remember that when the, uh, mm-hmm. the phenomenon of the Pumitech J&J and then the pivotal trial got canceled. But guess mm-hmm. what? We found that it had tremendous effects that we could take cartilage, we could mince it, Chondrocytes came out, and, and we were seeing our MRIs and our clinical follow-ups were quite positive, but they canceled the pivotal trial. And that point on, uh, people like Andreas Gomol and Jack Farr and Brian and myself began thinking more about mincing cartilage and, and asking me what has been the newest that we've been really focusing on is what we call PACI, particulate autograph uh, cartilage implantation. Um, it's also called Autocart by our Arthrex uh, partners. And uh, we also have uh, utilized it and, and now we're seeing tremendous results, especially on the patella. Uh, and again, these things have to be done in conjunction with either BMAC or PRP to facilitate cartilage metabolism, activating the chondrocytes and improving material strength of the cartilage we form. And again, all these things we do, we're checking with patient reported outcomes and endpoints such as MRI at different times. So it's been very exciting to us, uh, for us, and also in conjunction with our approaches to osteochondral allograft. It's been exciting. Uh, and again, once again, using orthobiologics to facilitate integration of our grafts, whether it be PRP or bone marrow aspirate concentration. So those have been the, the two areas that have been very exciting to us. Yeah. So just for the listeners, I always like to break it down a little bit so my mother could understand. So basically, you know, we take a little cartilage and then you mince it, you chop it up in the operating room, right? From a, from a donor site. And then you put it into the place where it needs to go. And then what you do is you either take some blood from the arm, which is the platelet rich plasma, or you can do BMAC, which is the bone marrow aspirate concentrate, which typically can come out either from the knee area or it could come from the pelvis area. You spin it down and you get these growth factors. And then you throw some growth factors on to like some fertilizer to hopefully have that cartilage heal and go on. And so that's the process. And I think that uh, we'll talk a little bit more about regenerative medicine too, because I think that's such a, a major theme right now in orthopedics. I, you know, so uh, 
One of the other things I wanted to talk about, though, is that, you know, I think you're also involved in, in placing BMAC into the bone. So, you know, the procedure of the interosseous bioplasty that's been been uh, touted by Arthrex. I know you partner with them. I'm a, a big fan. I'm currently using Tactoset, which is the bone mineral substitute. I don't believe it's not a subchondroplasty is a pretty lousy name for something, but, you know, percutaneous fixation or, or helping to sort of stimulate the bone marrow lesion. And for the people that are listening, it's a zone in the bone that becomes really thin, if you will. It almost looks like a stress fracture. And it's a source of pain and it's a bad prognostic indicator for arthritis. And and so it's interesting that we've been sort of in the process of trying to fix those lesions as well. So give us your experience on the intraosseous bioplasty. Well, so let's get back to our approach, concepts, technique, technology, okay? When it comes to the subconal bone, what we've learned since 1998 is ready has given us an understanding of this very amazing nexus of blood vessels that exist in the bone. And when we disrupt those, we call it a variety of names. We can call it an insufficiency fracture. We call bone marrow edema. We can call it sunk. We can call it osteonecrosis, call any of those things. But what's happening there is very interesting. There's two phenomena. One is on the pressure side. Pressure goes up. On the venous outflow side, the capacitance goes up and the clearance time goes up. So what happens is we're just not clearing blood flow in and out of the bone. And then we see something that has been described by Philippe Hernigou which is basically the cells decrease in their population. They get down-regulated, and it really represents a significant problem. So we have a physiological problem. We have a cellular problem. And guess what? We have to solve it. So man and our tools, concepts, technique, technology, go at it. We say, okay, how can I solve this problem? Well, i got to alleviate the pressure. i got to get the blood flow out of there, and i got to bring in some cells. So how do we do that? Well decompression has been around a while. And again, Philippe Kernaglou from Paris has done an amazing job, especially in the hip, in giving us some understanding when we decompress, it makes a difference. But bone marrow aspirate concentration, why? Because we have some cells, not a whole lot, 0.001% stem cells in there, but they become, because they're multi-potential, they become osteocytes and osteoblasts, bringing in more cells. So what do we do? We bring in cells, we alleviate the pressure, we get to change the venous capacitance dimensions, and we get bone to heal. So it's been an amazing phenomena. And in certain situations, when we need to add strength, there's where the mineralized matrix come in. Uh, and so it's, it's an amazing phenomenon in the last decade to put together all these concepts that we now have techniques and technology all together to improve our clinical care. Well, that's that's perfect. That is a great segue because the next thing that I wanted to talk about was Hernigou's study that was just recently published. Um, and I, I wanted everybody to hear about this because I really find it pretty fascinating. This was, and it's just amazing that he just published this thing. So he was taking care of patients from the year 2000 to 2005. And he was deciding to- Randomized control trial. Randomized control trial. He put, he put the bone marrow aspirate either into the joint- or into the bone marrow lesion that we were just talking about. And he then followed him for 15 years. And of, of the patients that had the injection into the bone, 12 out of 60 of them went on to total knee replacements. Not so bad, 1.3% per year. 
but 42 out of 60 that had the bone marrow aspirate into the joint went on to total knee replacement. I mean, that's that's an unbelievable study. Unbelievable study. Uh, in, in so many different ways. What a landmark study you point out, Ziggy. Because Hernigu is is really, I mean, he's a John Wooden of what we're talking about. He has been back, you know, in before 2000, thinking about this, developing solutions. And um, my admiration really goes out to him for, for being able to develop uh, the concepts around this. And then in, in 20 years, showing this study of decreasing the rate of total neoarthroplasty after the intraosseous injection. Just amazing study, you point out. Yeah, really remarkable. So we'll stay here in regenerative medicine for a second. And, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> regenerative medicine right now in orthopedics, I just got uh, got quoted in, in Becker's spine. He, he asked a number of us about what our thoughts were about the most controversial, you know, sort of treatment right now. And it's like black licorice and the Grateful Dead, man. It's like you either love it or you hate it. There's like no in between. And there are great orthopedic leaders that have been in the space for decades that have been, you know, proponents of it. But yet the the literature, you know, unfortunately still lags as far as the ability for commercial payers or Medicare to recognize this as a treatment that they want to pay for. So, so talk to me about that. Is that a, is it a failure? You know, is is our academy doing a good enough job to be able to to settle this thing out? You know, should we be? Do, I, I know the studies are coming out slow but sure, and I'm a firm believer that there's definitely something in there that's working, but we just maybe don't understand it as well as we need to. But give me give us your thoughts right now on regenerative medicine. I hate to be redundant, Ziggy, with you. Concepts, technique, technology in evolution over time. <laughs> But here's a good one. Rogers gave us the innovation diffusion theory that we know about. It starts with the innovators, the early adopters, then we come with the early majority, late majority, and then guess what? 16% lagger. And everything we do in technology, whether it be robots or virtual reality or big data, 3D printing, everything goes that way. And guess what? Orthobiologics is going the same way. And where are we? We're well before our tipping point. We're at that stage of innovation, 2.5%. It's early on. And then we see ourselves as early adopters. And what do we do? People like myself and Jason Dragu, we formed the Biologic Association with a great group of people in several societies, AOSSM, ANA, ICRS. We do that a little bit with our academy. We do it with our colleagues in medicine. We do it with our rehabilitative specialists, and we do it in a way that's now the Biologic Association that's trying to forward the science and being able to put the science to play and, and establish this path of good evidence-based information. Has Academy been great to us? No. Academy went early on developing guidelines that came out, and again, this is from data 10 years ago that really told everybody, practicing orthopedic surgeons, that the only thing you could do is give orthotics some exercise and an osteotomy for arthritis. Nothing was really green lit in that description. And, and, and as a consequence, we felt it was important that we get on top of this literature. It's extremely dynamic. There's a tremendous amount of literature. It's heterogeneous. And as a consequence, we're limited again. Back to the Rogers Diffusion Innovation 
It's going to take time. It's going to take disciplined science that's not conflicted, that doesn't have a bias to it, that we can report with white papers, we can report with guidances and guidelines. And But it takes the work and it takes the time. But we're moving along exponentially fast. Moore's Law has given us that as well. Uh, and I think in the next few years, we're going to see tremendous amount of information that is not heterogeneous, that not only how to use a PRP or a BMAC or understanding W and T inhibition, but how to use them all as in an adjunctive way, which is going to be like all of medicine, whether it be HIV or oncologic approaches, it's going to require surgery, radiation for breast cancer, and immunotherapy. For us, it's going to require that we approach these things from different systems, and we're doing that at the moment. But it is an evolution. Yeah, exceptionally well said. I mean, uh, you know, we hear this a lot on the Ortho Show about people with new technology and the things that they're doing and the, and the the struggles to get across the chasm of innovation to be able to get those people to become more mainstream. And so really, thank you very much for that outstanding explanation. So one of the other things that I'm, I'm very proud of you for uh, is, you know, I called you as we as the lead in here, you know, the defender of ACLs. But you know, at the forefront at the earliest times, you've been a huge proponent of trying to develop ACL prevention protocols, right? It's an epidemic. The worst thing you can do as a clinician is walk into the room of that 18-year-old uh, woman who, you know, is a Division One soccer player and tell her that she's torn her ACL. And so walk us through the FIFA 11, which I know you were a big part of through your soccer world, which was this prevention program, where it is now, what your thoughts are as we move forward trying to to really prevent these really terrible injuries? Well, Ziggy, you know, all this started in 1999. We were in Hunt Valley, Maryland with a group of 21 different therapists, trainers, docs, putting our heads together with my good old friend in memory of Bill Garrett and myself, bringing together this group, trying to figure out what was happening in these young girls. Why was it preferential to these young girls and what we could do about it? Now it came what we call the PEP program, Prevent Injury Enhanced Performance. And it was five exercises before the workout. And we did a study in the early 2000s looking at whether or not it was effective and found that it was first 88% effective, then 74% effective. And then the CDC got involved and they wanted to look at it separately than us. And they found it was 72% effective in a randomized control trial. And then FIFA got involved and we developed the FIFA level 11 plus program. We translated to 11 different languages and it went global. And we also studied with another randomized controlled trial in male soccer players showing a 76% reduction in ACL injuries. So it's been an amazing evolution. We've learned a lot over time in terms of how these injuries occur, what the mechanisms are, and how we can make a difference in terms of prevention programs. And most importantly, when they've injured their ACL, how we could prevent either the injury to the same knee or the contralateral knee. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really terrific. And, and I jumped on board, you know, early on and, and just trying to get as many of our athletes to follow this FIFA 11. And for those that are listening, you can Google it. It's 11 plus exercises that you can do. It's about core strengthening. And, and these are things that can help you and your, your young athletes to hopefully not have to walk in the doctor's office and have that consultation about 
uh, about ACL injury. You know, we had Tim Hewitt on as well. I know you, you know, Tim well, and uh, there's just a lot of, you know, very positive concepts that are out there where, you know, as far as what we can do to try and, and prevent injury for our athletes. So, you know, kudos to you again for really being one of the earliest adopters in that. That's fantastic, Bert. So, you know, we, again, we let in as you as, as the OG of soccer. I mean, I, when I think of cartilage, I think of Burt Mandelbaum. When I think of U.S. soccer, I think of Burt Mandelbaum. So, so you know, tell us what's going on. I mean, you've done everything when it comes to the medical world of soccer. I mean, you've taken care of the U.S. national men's team forever. You've been the chief medical officer of a number of different events. So what's the latest and greatest? I know you're also taking care of the Los Angeles Galaxy What's happening with soccer, man? It's your passion. It's what you do. Give us an update. Well, I've been involved with soccer, as you know, since 1994 and that effort that we did in the World Cup right here in America and uh, represented the red, white and blue ever since. You know, that's my my patriotic commitment. And it's been amazing to see good times and bad times. I've been involved with all the World Cups, Olympics since and uh, now. Now you ask what's new is that we've got some youth on our side. Uh, the next generations, the Reinas, who uh, did well in the early millennia and before, now we've got their sons, Gio Reina. We've got a variety of other athletes who are young, somewhere between 18 and 22, all out there playing for the big clubs like Barcelona, Christian Pulisic playing for Chelsea. We've got people playing for Juventus scoring goals. Yesterday was a big day. Uh, our men's national team players, three of them scored. Weston McKinney, uh, Gio Reyna. Uh, and so it's a, it's an amazing, amazing moment in Christian uh, scoring a goal. So um, it's, it's exciting to see what's happening. Now, that said, we've got to put together the reality, and we have a great coach in Greg Berhalter. Um, a great commitment of U.S. soccer. So I'm excited about the next World Cup. I'm excited about our Olympics next year in, in Japan. And I'm excited for the future of U.S. soccer, both on the men's and the women's side going forward. So it's an exciting time for us. And they all haven't been so exciting. Um, I've been there through the thick and the thin times, you know. Uh, so this is great to see at the moment. Yeah, well, again, I mean, we're super proud of you, Bert, for, you know, for for sticking through this and really elevating soccer to the level where it is at this point right now. We're excited. I mean, when that World Cup comes on, I look forward to seeing you on the sideline. And, you know, it just really sort of transitions all of us into the excitement of the game. But uh, look, Bert, you know, I want to thank you. I mean, you've been a pioneer and leader in so many different, you know, really important areas in, in sports medicine. And it's a real pleasure to call you friend and colleague. I just can't thank you enough for all of your efforts. Ziggy, it's my pleasure. And I want to thank you for having the ortho show and bringing these concepts, these technologies and these techniques to the audience. You know, we're all in it. As we say, we have one world and one medical team. We might as work to well work together regardless of where we are in the world, regardless of where we are in our specialization, because we can only do it together. Well, that's word to the gospel there. This is the Ortho Show. And as I said on the lead-in, we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. And Burt Mandelbaum is absolutely part of that. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.